like I said before, I'm speaking about money as part of a three-week series as we think about where we're going as a church this year. Now, to speak about money here at a church runs the danger of affirming a stereotype. The stereotype is that the church simply exists to get your money and to maintain its power. But I want to say this afternoon, I'm not speaking about money because I need your money. And I'm not speaking about money because God needs your money. I'm going to be speaking about money because of what Jesus said in that second reading. Where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. What Jesus means by that is where you place your money, where you decide either consciously or unconsciously, to put your money is an exact indication of what you think is important, what you value, in Jesus' words, what you treasure. As a pastor, I'm called to care about our hearts because God cares about our hearts. And so we think about money. It's not something that we do every week here at Point Church. If you're a visitor with us, this may be a good week because this is not necessarily a sermon directed to you. I hope it's of some value. Because in the Bible, money is not considered something that's unspiritual. I don't know, growing up, what your parents were like, perhaps a reflection of the ethnic culture or otherwise that you grew up in, but how was money spoken about? Did you know, for example, how much your father or mother earned? For some cultures, they like to speak about money. I have one side of my family that's of Greek heritage and background, and they're quite comfortable talking about money, how much they paid for a house, asking each other how much they earn. My Anglo-English side of the family would never ask how much you earned, or, in fact, you know, as, as interested as they may be, how much they paid for a house. I don't know what background you have and how you grew up thinking about money. What, what about Chinese or Asian cultures? Is, is money spoken about? Is it a no-go area? What about Indian cultures? Is it, is it a no-go area to talk about money? Okay. You don't, you don't ask questions. Right. Okay. What about in Asian Chinese? No boundaries. So, so the opposite. Uh, you do. So typically like more a Greek or Italian background. Money is something that it's just a fact of life and you talk about it and you want to know how much your cousin earns. See, in the Bible, money is not a no-go area. In fact, it's important that we see from the scriptures that money is spoken about a lot. In the law of Moses, the prophets speak about money and of course, Jesus speaks about money. Money is one of, in fact, the subjects that Jesus speaks about the most. Some New Testament scholars estimate the amount that Jesus speaks about money is around 25%. A quarter of what he says, some scholars say, when he's speaking, he's talking about money. The other writers of the New Testament, James, Paul and Peter, all talk about money as well in their letters. Why does the Bible talk about money so much? Well, it talks about money because money is important. And money is important to you, and it's important to me. And so as we begin this year, we want to have our minds and our hearts shaped by the Bible, 
There's lots of influence in our life from the world around money. But here we have just a small opportunity to have our hearts and minds shaped by the Bible. Often we want something practical. We want something relevant to our lives. Well, as we speak about money, I would suggest this is pretty relevant and pretty practical. And yet it's it's difficult. It's difficult to talk about money because uh, depending on our cultural background, there is often a sense of guilt or a sense of shame. As we speak about money, we consider our own wealth and then we consider ourselves in relation to others and either that springs up in our minds a sense of comparison, arrogance, because we may perceive ourselves as wealthier or in superiority. But here we have the chance to let God shape our minds. And so I'm going to pray that he might do that as we look at this subject today. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would come to us in your saving power as this word is preached to have our hearts and minds shaped by this word that we read, this gospel that we believe, and this man, the Lord Jesus, that we follow. We ask, Father, that you would shape us, transform us, such that our lives would glorify you in every way, but in particular with the money that you have given us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have an outline today. It's really spinning around four sections. The first section is the challenge. The second section is the question. The third section is the insight. And the fourth section is the answer. The challenge, question, insight and answer. Firstly, the challenge. Now, in order for us to understand the challenge, I need to set the scene. And the scene that I want to set was from our first reading, from Haggai chapter 1. The time is 520 BC. Around 20 years earlier, the Jewish people have returned to their homeland from exile. There in Babylon, they imagined what it would be like to be back in this promised land. They heard the stories, perhaps, of how beautiful the plains were back home. But as they return, they return to devastation and disappointment. Jerusalem has been sacked. This city of beauty is now in pieces and the people of God are given a priority. They have a job of rebuilding this urban wasteland, but they have a priority given by God and that is to build the temple. Now the temple for the ancient Israelites was this this central symbol, this symbol that was defining in terms of their culture identity, history, and faith. But it was more than just a symbol. It was a place of worship and sacrifice, the place where the manifest manifest presence of God was most felt. You saw it. You heard it. You could even smell it. It was experienced. It wasn't just a symbol. The temple was this visual sign of God's promise and proclamation of his cosmic reign over his people and of, indeed, the whole entire cosmos. It was important, the temple. And no one in Israel denied that the temple was important. But other things are important as well. And as we know, with large infrastructure projects, it's all about timing. Have a look at the timing of this infrastructure project in chapter 1 
Verse 2, there in Haggai. These people say, this is God, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. It's all about timing. And in the people's mind, it's not the right time. You know why? Well, to start with, how do you live in this urban wasteland? I mean, they had to sleep somewhere. Their houses were important. They had to defend themselves. Their military was important. They had to eat, and so their crops were important. There was a lot to do. And on top of all that there was to do as they returned to their homeland, there was great political unrest. One leader had just died two years early. Another has come. He's mentioned there the governor, the king, not a king, the governor, Zerubbabel. Israel are not an independent political entity. And they need a messiah. But they don't have a messiah. They have a bureaucrat, a governor, a manager, an organiser, a facilitator, but not a leader. And it's not what they hoped, it's not just what they had, it's, it's not just a disappointment for them politically, but it's also not what they hoped for economically, because on top of all this, as they begin to rebuild this city, there's this extreme situation of financial distress, distress they find themselves in, depression-like conditions, the people as a defeated nation, are under this heavy burden of taxation. And it's also disappointingly agriculturally because there's a drought in the land. And this is devastating. This is devastating in terms of survival, but it's devastating in terms of morale. Many of those who lived through the Second World War from 1939 to 1945 say that it was actually harder to live in the period after the Second World War, from 1945 to around 1950. Why? Well, during the Second World War, they had something to do. They had to fight. They had a purpose. They had meaning. But after they had won the war in England, from 1945 right into the 50s, they were under severe rationing. There wasn't a lot of food to go round. And so people said it was more difficult to, to live after the war because of the lack of food than it was during the war. And that's the situation that we have here for the nation of Israel. No food. Unstable. So much to do. But it wasn't as though they were lazy. Have a look at verse 6. God says, you have planted. They were working hard. And verse 9 tells us that they've been very busy. It's just that there was so much to do when they got back. They were resource low. Oh yes, opportunity high, resource low. There wasn't enough time in the day simply to put food in mouths. I mean, as a politician, during a depression, you wouldn't you know, think that you would be voted in on the ticket of and the vision of building an art gallery. It would seem indulgent. Well, that's the situation that Israel's in, because why would you build a temple in the middle of a drought? These people are stretched thin. They're overwhelmed by the essential, let alone anything on top of that. Can you relate to being overwhelmed by the essential? I just got back from holidays, and uh, I've been thinking about my week in the next two weeks and months, and it, it was beginning to look manageable, and then I opened my inbox 
And then I began to send some texts and it went pretty well from manageable to manic within 12 hours. In the book Overwhelmed, subtitle Work, Love and Play When Nobody Has the Time, the writer Bridget Shull asks, are our brains, our partners, our culture and our bosses making it impossible for us to experience anything but what she calls contaminated time? She says there's no such thing these days because of our, the busyness of our lives is pure time. Every moment is contamina- contaminated. Work is contaminated by play and rest, and rest and play are contaminated by work. Do you have the sense that often in life you feel like you're always behind? We live in a culture of busyness. Um, when I read this book and when I looked it up there were any number of titles around the culture of busyness in the modern western world. We are people who are frantic, stretched thin. Last year there was a survey of 18,000 Australian women and more than half of those 18,000 Australian women the Jean Hallows Women's Health Survey indicated that they felt overwhelmed and in the category of super busy. But it's fine. At least if you're working now, perhaps raising kids, when you retire, it'll be okay. Is that true, those of us who are retired? Things get easier when you retire, up the back there? Not necessarily. You still feel stretched, don't you? You still feel busy. In fact, Bill Gates, as he was running Microsoft, he was busy. And he had this dream that one day he'd learn golf when he retired. We retired two years ago. And and, uh, six months into his retirement, he gave up trying to learn to play golf. Why? Because he was too busy. If Bill Gates doesn't have time in his retirement, who will? This is the challenge for Israel. This is the challenge for us. Into their hectic, overwhelmed lives, God asks a question. This is our second section, the question. Have a look there in verse 3. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, that is God's house, the temple, remains a ruin? God asks a probing and disturbing question of the nation of Israel. They're saying, we don't have the time, we don't have the resources to do, God, what you've told us to do to build the temple. And God asks, yeah, you don't have the time, I get that, but you seem to have the time enough to build your own luxury houses. I've heard it said that when we say we don't have time, what we are actually saying is that it's not a priority. Israel didn't have time. What they're actually saying to God is building his temple is not a priority. Time and resources they had. Not a lot of time and not a lot of resource, but they had some and the temple was not that priority And so as we begin 
this year as a church, I want to challenge us to ask ourselves, and I ask this question to myself as well, what about our priorities? Obviously, as Christian people, we are not called to build a physical temple in the land of Jerusalem. However, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says to them that we, as Christian people, are the temple of God. You might remember from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes and he says, you yourselves are being built into what? Into a spiritual house. The church, the people who gather for worship, us, people who have experienced the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. We now become that place as God indwells in us individually as he indwells within us corporately, we become that place for which the presence of God is experienced. Not a place where, but a people who called out to worship this God. And our collective worship, as small as we are, as relatively insignificant as we are in the scheme of this world, as we gather... To worship the Lord Jesus, we are God's signpost. We are his neon sign, his witness to the world of his cosmic reign, of his presence with his people, of his love and of his forgiveness. And so we're faced with this difficult question, just as God's people said that they were too busy to build his temple. How busy are we? How committed are we to building this church? How committed are we to its mission and its ministry? And I understand. I understand that life has so many pressures. Mortgages are steep. Schools are expensive. Jobs are increasingly less secure. Super seems to be more precarious. Life seems so busy. We've got so much to get done. Interestingly, in verse 11 there in Haggai, God doesn't deny the difficulty that the people are in. He doesn't claim that, in fact, there's, abundance, there's an abundance of resource. He recognises the scarcity. He doesn't claim the people aren't busy. It's just they're busy in the wrong kind of way. And so at the start of this year, at the end of, can you believe it, at the end of the first month of 2019, we need to ask ourselves this question, will we prioritise giving ourselves to the life of our church? Will we prioritise giving our time, our money and our energy? The people of Israel had a conditional intention It's the problem for Israel of convenient leftovers. No one in Israel is denying that the temple isn't important, that the temple's not good, that God isn't real. The problem is practically in their lives, they're only willing to to give God what is left over once their houses are panelled, once their lives are in order. Sometimes we suffer from this problem of convenient leftovers. We might contribute to the ministry of church financially if we're okay this month. 
We might come to an event for church if we happen to be free. We might do something like serve if we feel like it. There's a challenge. But Haggai's intention is to help the nation of Israel because this is an early stage. They're only just back 20 years. And they've gone off the rails. But Haggai, I think his intention is to help. It's to not burden them. His intention is... Not to take, but to give. And so why, are the, is, why is the nation of Israel doing it so tough? Why are they empty and stretched? Well, I did say it's because there's a famine and it's politically unstable. But that's not really why. It's not really the geopolitical climate. It's not the environmental factors. Their difficulty, Haggai says, is a direct consequence of how they're relating to God, of, in fact, their willingness to believe in God and yet not to prioritise him, not to hear his word and obey. You see, because I think Israel fell into the trap whereby God became simply a, a stakeholder to keep happy and placate, not the creator and sustainer of everything they had and every moment of their lives. What they have, they have because God has given it to them. What we have, we have because God has given it to us. What's disturbing in Haggai is that what they don't have is also because of him. Have a look at verse 9. I'll read from verses 9 to 11. This is, this is difficult stuff. You expected much. High hopes. Aspirations. But see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty. Because my house, which remains a ruin, my house remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains and on the labours of your hands. You see, the people of God are under the judgment of God. But this judgment in God bringing in this drought and God withholding the dew is meant to help them, is meant to help them see, is meant to bring them into a moment of insight And that's our third point, insight. Because here's what they've missed. And I think this will help us out as well because we so often miss it as well. Have a look at verse 6. Because he says that, look, they've planted much, but they've harvested little. They eat, but never have enough. They drink, but never have their fill. They put on clothes, but are not warm. They earn wages but only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. God says, he intervenes with this drought. He shakes them up in the middle of their hectic confusion. And he says, stop, stop in your busyness. Take stock. Think about where you are. Essentially, God says, how's it going for you? 
How's that working out for you? You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You keep eating, but you're never full. You earn wages, but you're burning a hole in your wallet. Have you ever felt like that? Ever felt like your bank account has a hole in it that just leeches money every day, whether you know it or not? God says, where's all your busyness got you? Where's how you're doing life got you? And we need to ask ourselves, where's it got us? Where's it got us? The Mayo Clinic released a study, I saw this on the ABC website a couple of months ago, and says that there's this huge health epidemic. This is what it's causing. It's causing anxiety depression, digestive problems, headaches, heart disease, sleep problems, weight gain, memory and concentration impairment. What's causing this? Busyness. Uh, The writers, and we have some doctors with us and they um, will no doubt confirm this, that when we're so busy and so stressed, well, we're built for stress and busyness. That's not a problem. When you see a lion, you want to be stressed to run. But the problem is, and it's cited in this study, when you are under prolonged stress, you constantly feel under attack on the flight or flight response. When this area and section of your brain is always turned on, it's bad for your health. Now, this is not a Christian study, but this is, a modern appreciate, this is an appreciation of our modern world, of our busyness. Our busyness is not, in fact, making us more productive. Study after study shows us this. And what about all our stuff? I know some of us have become interested in Marie Kondo. Who's heard of Marie Kondo? Put your hand up. Yes, some of us. Now, I quite like collecting stuff, and um, Mandy's um, constantly worried during council cleanup because I'm always coming back (laughs) with stuff I've found. And it's it's great stuff, I think, um, off the side of the road. But... Marie Kondo is part of, if you haven't seen it, I haven't seen it, I've only heard it from different people telling me about it, it's part of this declutter movement. That is, um, you know, there was a more popular version of it, the minimalist movement, there was a less popular movement uh, five years ago where all these um, very successful corporate guys left their life in London and New York and built shacks in Alaska. This minimalist movement. This is, I think, a more popular version of this. And what's really interesting, as I've come across some of the literature, they speak about it in terms of, like, almost religiously, they speak about, you know, as you engage in these tasks of decluttering, it frees you from, what, guilt, fear, and the trappings of consumerism. See, it's interesting, isn't it, that we've eaten, but we're not full. We've drunk, but it's not enough. We've put on clothes and clothes and clothes and clothes, but, you know, we're not warm. Two out of three Australians who earn over $120,000 a year in another survey think that they don't have enough money to buy everything they need. We live in the world, one of the wealthiest countries. We live in the best city People earning over $120,000 a year don't think that they can survive. 
Why is that? Why do we feel this way? Well, it's because we haven't looked at the mountains. The answer is not Marie Kondo. The problem is not wealth. The answer is God, and the problem is our hearts. See, our hearts turn wealth into greed. Greed looks at wealth and says, that's not enough. J.D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men in America, uh, once said, once was asked, how much is enough? And he said, who knows, how much is enough? Anyone know what Rockefeller said? Yeah, just, just a bit more. Just a bit more. See, we think we'll be generous as people once we have enough. We think we'll be generous when we feel satisfied. Except the problem is we never feel satisfied and we never have enough. John Hopkins University did a study on busyness and wealth. And the chair of the study, Professor Eric Helter, says that busyness confers your value, your potential worth is wrapped up in the perceived lack of time you have. Busyness has become a status symbol. How are you? Oh, busy. What am I telling you when you ask me that question? What I'm telling you is I'm important because I'm busy. And when you ask me how I am and I tell you I'm busy, I'm trying to tell you how important I am. It's the same with money. See, the issue is our hearts. The issue is where our hearts find treasure. The issue is where our hearts find satisfaction. And this is what the gospel of the Lord Jesus does for us. It helps to reorientate us around what's important in our lives. I want to say two things just as I close in relation to money. But before I do that, I want us just to reflect on Matthew 6. Because we'll see it in a moment. God's answer to his people in Haggai's time as they return to Jerusalem is to look to the mountain. But Jesus says in that second reading that Mandy said that we're not to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We're not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth, but treasures on heaven. Literally in verse 19 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't treasure earthly treasures, but treasure heavenly treasures. See, everyone has a treasure. We all have at the centre of our souls something that we think if we had that, then it would all be worth it. But the Christian has been freed from being controlled by that treasure. That's why Jesus is encouraging his followers to find their real treasure in God's kingdom, in his death, in what God has done for them. He's encouraging his followers to see what's important to release them. Now, if you come to church and you think, oh, he's going to talk about money, that doesn't sound particularly freeing or liberating. What that sounds to most people is, well, well, it, it sounds like it's a bind. It sounds threatening. But here's the thing. A Christian has been freed from the control of money by finding Jesus as their treasure. 
And one of the beautiful things as we think about money and as we think about our contribution to church, one of the things is that we realise we gain freedom when we give our worth, wealth. Marie Kondo, um, as I understand, seeks to free people by getting rid of stuff which so bounds people. Well, the Christian version of that is as we, ga- as we give our wealth, we gain a freedom because until we give it, it owns us. And this is important to realise. It's not just the aspiration of contributing to church, but in the actual act of making that happen, we are freed, freed from the control of money. As I close, God says to help his people, he says in verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the house. God says to his people, you have what you need. You have what you need because I gave you. I gave you everything and I'll give you everything you need. God has given his people Jerusalem. He's given them that blessing. He's given them that mountain to bring that timber and to build that house. God has been generous to them so that he might be glorified in the building of his temple. Well, in the same way for us, God has been generous to us. He's given us everything that we need and is, as we prioritise the building of his kingdom, as we, as Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God, we find the blessing of God. When we place ourselves first, you know what happens? All we see is the holes in our pockets. But when we place God and the priority of his kingdom, the building of his church, the cause of the gospel in our lives and in this community, we start to see the mountains. We start to see the mountains of grace that God has given us. God wants to take delight in what we give, in our sacrifice. Because the only place, because our hearts will be only satisfied when he is first in our lives. Why does God want us to prioritise our resources for the sake of his church? Because God wants us to be with him. When we live with him first, when we give to the cause of what he is doing in this world, our hearts are tied with him. Our hearts are tied with what he's doing because he wants to be with us. It pleases him. Verse 8 in Haggai, it pleases him when God's people make him a priority and build and work for the cause of his kingdom. May he be pleased in the life of our church. Amen.